Good morning, everyone. My name is Michelle. I serve as the director of worship here at MCBC, and I'm so glad to be here with you today as we continue in our sermon series, This or That, about decision-making. Last Sunday, Pastor Richard's sermon was about the most important decision ever. That is the decision to follow Jesus. The decision to not just have God around in your life, but to build your whole life around your relationship with him, putting him first above all else. My message today is about what happens after that, after you make the most important decision ever. What effect does that have on how you make decisions going forward? Now that you have a relationship with the God who made you, loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life, how do you actually go about making decisions? And in case you're still considering the most important decision ever, I hope this message gives you a better picture of some of the great things in store for you, if you do. Now, before I go any further, I should tell you that I find it quite ironic that God has given me the opportunity to speak on this topic. It's only been more recently in my life, about the last few years, that I've started to enjoy rather than dread the responsibility of decision-making. I honestly used to hate making decisions. I would avoid it as much as possible. Is anyone else here like that? (laughs) When my husband and I were dating, we actually would get into fights just trying to decide what to eat for dinner. That was actually a pretty regular thing, I'm embarrassed to say. He would come and pick me up, get in the car, we'd be so happy to see each other. He would say, what do you want to eat? And I would say... I don't know. What do you want? And then this would quickly disintegrate from playful banter to an exasperated, hangry exchange because he is a decisive person and I knew that he already had a restaurant in mind that he wanted to go to. And all he had to do was tell me, but he wanted me to become a more decisive person and have my own opinion. And because he's such a good boyfriend, he wanted me to have whatever I wanted. So he refused to answer my question. Finally, we'd get to a point where he would say, just tell me what you want. To which I would reply, I just want you to tell me what you want. (laughs) Don't worry, we have grown past this. But I tell you this story because I see that many Christians experience that kind of frustration when it comes to making decisions with God. Decision-making feels more like a trial to be endured or a test we're afraid to fail rather than a gift. The opportunity to spend time together with God and each other, enjoying his loving presence and faithfulness as he guides us through life. To be clear, what I'm talking about today pertains to decisions we make about things that are not specifically or clearly addressed in the Bible. If you are making a decision about whether to steal or not to steal, you do not need to discern any further. God has already told us very clearly in the Ten Commandments that stealing is not his will for us. So, that covers quite a number of the decisions you might be making. If the decision basically boils down to commit sin, or don't commit sin, you already know what God's will is. Even if it's difficult or costly, God is honored in our, in our choices to obey his commandments. But many of our decisions are not like that. 
They are not about what's clearly right or wrong, good or evil, what program to apply to for university, whether or not to move to another city or start your own business or end a relationship. Those are pretty big, life-altering decisions. But we also make lots of seemingly smaller but still significant decisions. Should I become closer friends with this person? How do I engage with technology and social media in a way that is healthy? Is this the right time to add another commitment to my busy schedule? The Bible doesn't contain specific answers to those questions, does it? Or some of our decisions are about things the Bible tells us to do, but we don't know the timing or exactly how it applies. So let me ask you a question. How many of you want to do God's will? Do you want to live in a way that is according to God's purposes and plans? Put your hand up if you do. That's beautiful to see your desire to do his will. Now let me ask, how many of you know without a doubt what God's will is? Put your hand up. Do you know what God's will is? I can think of many situations involving decision-making where I have basically said to God, please just tell me what you want. I want to do your will, but I can't because I don't know what it is. So let's talk about that. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to dig deep into verses 1 and 2. Romans is closer to the end of the Bible than the beginning, so if you flip backwards, you will find it faster. It's before 1 Corinthians and after the book of Acts. While you're flipping pages, if you brought your journal with you, thank you for doing that. Feel free to write down any verses, phrases, ideas, and doodles in your journal as we go along. And just in case you want them, there are some printed copies of the sermon notes on that back table. All right. Romans 12, 1-2. Would you all read that with me out loud? And in case you have a different translation, that's totally fine. Here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here, Paul gives us a wonderful description of how we are to live as believers. Verse 1 describes what last Sunday's sermon was about. He is urging us to receive God's mercy and respond in worship by offering ourselves as living sacrifices. We say to God, I offer to you my whole self because you are worthy of everything I've got. And by the way, in case you're not sure you can honestly say to God, I offer you 100% of me 100% of the time. You're not alone. But let's remember that following Jesus wholeheartedly is not about our own perfection. It's about surrendering to his perfection. So you can say to God, I want to offer you my whole self but I'm not sure I'm ready, and I'm not sure I even want that 100% of the time. Please help me to want you 
above everything else. Help me to let go of the things that keep me from putting you first. Verse 2 describes the means by which we live as living sacrifices. Paul gives two contrasting instructions and then the outcome. Two contrasting instructions. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. First, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't let this present world, its behaviors, customs, and values, its sin and fallenness, shape who you are and how you think. Instead, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. We'll come back to that idea in just a minute and consider what it means to have renewed minds. But what is the outcome? When believers do not conform to the pattern of this world and instead are transformed by the renewing of our minds, then what happens? We will be able to test and approve what God's will is. According to New Testament scholar Douglas Moo, approving the will of God means to understand and agree with what God wants of us with a view to putting it into practice. So this phrase could be translated, discern and do the will of God. We will be able to discern and do the will of God. Isn't that wonderful? As followers of Jesus are transformed by the renewing of our minds, we will be able to discern and do the will of God. Maybe right now you are struggling with a big decision you're trying to make. I invite you for the next few minutes to put aside the burning question, what does God want me to do? And consider instead the question, how do I become a person who is able to discern and do the will of God? It involves the renewing of our minds. So let's take a closer look at that phrase, the renewing of your mind. Flip back a few chapters to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 Verses 5 and 6. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Listen also to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 16. We have not received the Spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The renewing of our minds involves engaging with God's word, the Bible, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so that we are transformed into people who think like Jesus thinks. We can have the mind of Christ, a mind controlled by the Spirit, which is life and peace. So that leads to two questions. First, what does it mean to receive guidance from the Holy Spirit? And second, how can we receive guidance from the Holy Spirit? That's the roadmap for the rest of this sermon. What does it mean? And how can we do it? So first, What does it mean to receive guidance from the Holy Spirit? Let's look at John chapter 14. John 14, 15 to 17. Here, Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before his betrayal and crucifixion. He is preparing them for his departure. Verse 15, 
If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. This word is also translated helper or advocate. He will give you another counselor, helper, advocate, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then verses 25 and 26. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the counselor, helper, advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Let's establish a few basic truths about the Holy Spirit. There are many more, but here are three. Number one, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not an it, an impersonal energy, like the force in Star Wars. He is a he, a being with personhood. He is one part of the Trinity along with God the Father and God the Son. Number two, the Holy Spirit is the living, indwelling presence of Christ in a believer. Here, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going away from them, but that the Father will send the Holy Spirit to be with them forever, to help and teach them. Take a moment right now and wiggle your fingers and toes. Maybe you want to stretch a little bit. Look at your body and consider what 1 Corinthians 3.16 says. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? By the way, today is Pentecost Sunday when we remember what happened 50 days after that first Easter Sunday. Jesus' disciples were filled with the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit on that day. And still today, whenever someone truly receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, in that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in them. He is God's living presence in you. So number one, the Holy Spirit is God. Number two, the Holy Spirit is the living, indwelling presence of Christ in you. And number three, the Holy Spirit teaches and transforms us according to God's will. In John 16, 13, Jesus says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. The Holy Spirit reveals to us what Jesus wants us to know, when he wants us to know it. He guides us as we read the Bible and helps us to understand the truth about God. The Holy Spirit reminds us of what Jesus taught and empowers us to live it out. He convicts us of sin and gives us awareness of what is evil and what is good. The Holy Spirit transforms us into people who know and do the will of God. Honestly, without the Holy Spirit alive in us, we can't do any of that. We would just be people with a book full of good values and rules that we don't have the ability to follow in our own human strength. But when we surrender day by day, moment by moment, to what the Holy Spirit wants to do with our minds, hearts, and bodies, he makes us more and more like Jesus, and we become who God calls us to be. Let's pause here for a moment, because 
Let's be honest. Talking about the Holy Spirit can sound pretty out there, right? In past generations and other traditions, he is called the Holy Ghost. Woo! I mean, we're talking about an invisible, external presence that comes into us and takes control of our minds and bodies, giving us abilities and understanding beyond what is humanly possible. There's a fascination in our culture today with superheroes and mutants with powers. Are Christians delusional enough to think that we have some kind of superpower? I can understand why someone who isn't a Christian listening to this would be wondering if I'm completely crazy. But it might help to recognize that in our world today, we frequently see examples of the impact of invisible things. We all know what it feels like to feel the wind against our skin or the sizzle of a spark as static electricity flows out of your fingertip. Emotions are invisible. Anger, fear, joy. We cannot see them, but we are undeniably influenced by them. Romance. That's a mysterious thing. Indeed, romance, whether infatuation or true love, is something that possesses people, taking control of their minds and bodies and motivating them to do things beyond what they would normally do. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul contrasts the state of being drunk on wine with the state of being filled with the Spirit. When people give themselves over to the influence of alcohol or other drugs by taking them into their bodies, they surrender their minds, bodies, and wills to the power of those substances. Someone can be mildly drunk, just tipsy, or hopelessly drunk, losing control of their words and actions. That is an example of a person allowing themselves to be overtaken by an invisible external power. But the consequences of drunkenness have the potential to be very destructive for themselves and for others. On the other hand, when a Christian allows him or herself to be overtaken by the influence of the Holy Spirit, the outcome is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So to answer the question, what does it mean to receive guidance from the Holy Spirit? It means that when we surrender ourselves to the living presence of God within us day by day, moment by moment, he will lead us to understand the truth, the truth about God, ourselves, and our world. And he will transform us into people with renewed minds, people who have the mind of Christ, who are able to discern and do the will of God. On to the next question. How? How can we receive guidance from the Holy Spirit? The process of becoming a wise and discerning person who receives guidance from the Holy Spirit is not automatic. Meaning, yes, the moment you wholeheartedly receive Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. You are a new creation. But you have a role to play in learning to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, recognize his activity, and obey his influence. Remember Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. That is an intentional, ongoing process. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is an intentional, ongoing process. Often, people will ask me, how long does it take to learn to play the piano? 
I've taught piano lessons for over a decade, and I've played the piano since I was three years old. I'm still learning to play the piano, and I will be for the rest of my life. How long does it take to learn to play the piano? It's a very difficult question to answer. Honestly, the best answer to that question is another question. How much practice are you willing to do? It's also important to ask, do you have an excellent teacher? One who understands how you learn and what kind of music you want to play. Do you have a quality instrument like this one that is readily accessible to you for practice? And are you going to practice all that your teacher assigns to you, even on the days when you don't feel like practicing? The moment you received Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you. Suddenly, there's a piano in your house. And not only a piano, but the best piano teacher ever has moved in with you. The lessons have already been paid for. Jesus took care of the bill. But it does cost you something to become a pianist. An investment of time and attention, an arranging of your priorities. And you must keep your fingernails short. There's no way around it. You can't be practicing the piano and be watching Netflix or checking your email or doing the dishes or taking a nap at the same time. You have to be willing to try new things, engage in new challenges, all while trusting that your teacher knows more than you do. And you must be willing to practice scales and exercises like these. Well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Scales and exercises may not be as fun or fulfilling as playing that piece of music you dream of being able to perform. I'll admit it, scales and exercises, I find them kind of boring. But if you apply yourself to learning and mastering these basic skills, over time, you will become a pianist who can play whatever music you want. It is the same way with learning to receive guidance from the Holy Spirit. In her wonderful book, Pursuing God's Will Together, Ruth Haley Barton writes, Discernment is much more than mere decision-making. It is, first of all, a habit, a way of seeing that can permeate our whole life. It is the movement from seeing things merely from a human perspective to seeing from a spiritual vantage point, continually looking for evidence of the work of God in order to join him in it. Discernment is a quality of attentiveness to God that over time develops into the ability to sense God's heart and purpose in any given moment. We become familiar with the tone, quality, and content of God's voice. I'm going to share with you now a few spiritual exercises that if practiced regularly, like scales, can help make us into discerning people who can receive guidance from the Holy Spirit. These are spiritual practices, sometimes called spiritual disciplines, that we can engage in to cultivate discernment. Think about it this way. If you're not regularly practicing listening to God, regularly offering your whole self to him, then what makes you think you would be able to do that naturally in the moment of an important and stressful decision? We must also remember that growing in spiritual discernment requires us to be engaged with God's word, the Bible, and with God's people, sharing life authentically with other followers of Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit leads us to be able to understand and apply God's word and gives us wisdom to understand not only spiritual truths, but also ourselves. Part of spiritual growth is growth in self-knowledge and self-awareness. So here are some spiritual practices that help us become people who are able to discern the will of God. You're welcome to try using one or several of these in your personal devotional time with God this week. The first spiritual practice is silence and solitude. This jar represents your soul. Most of the time, and in our modern world, it's probably accurate to say nearly all the time, it's being shaken up and the water is cloudy. You don't have clarity. You're not even sure how you feel or what you need. You can't hear your own thoughts, never mind hearing the voice of God. Buzz, another WhatsApp message. Beep, gotta go now or else I'm gonna be late. Ping, don't forget about the 15,000 things on your to-do list. We are constantly being pulled in so many different directions with so many urgent voices and flashing images vying for our attention. Some of these things are important and a lot of them really are not. Silence and solitude is the intentional practice of getting alone with God and quieting your soul in his presence. It's putting the jar down. Jesus himself did this regularly. It takes time for our souls to settle, for all of the noise to quiet down. This practice is very simple. You literally seek quiet and solitude. You sit down, maybe you close your eyes, and just let God's presence quiet you down. Maybe your thoughts keep distracting you, or it's not actually even quiet in your house because of your kids, but you are choosing to bring your attention to God, and as best as you can, leave other distractions behind. At first, setting a timer will be helpful. Try just three minutes for a few days, then five, then ten. Your soul is learning how to settle down so that it's not cloudy all the time. Look, it's already better. You're practicing making room to hear from the Spirit of God. The next few spiritual practices are forms of prayer. The first three are related to each other. They are like a three-step sequence that help us in discernment. These three are the prayer for indifference, the prayer for wisdom, and the prayer of quiet trust. First, the prayer for indifference. The word indifference here doesn't mean being apathetic or not caring at all. What it means is coming to a place of being able to say, I am indifferent to anything but the will of God. It means I want God's will so much that I don't have any attachment to anything else. There are examples of this prayer of indifference in the Bible. One is very well known thanks to the Beatles. Sing it with me if you know it. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. This is from the words of Mary when the angel appeared to her and told her she would be the mother of the Messiah. And her response was, let it be with me according to your word. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane prayed, not my will, but yours be done. We're going to try that now together as a breath prayer. A breath prayer is a helpful form of prayer that connects our words 
and our breathing. As you exhale, breathing out, say in your thoughts, not my will. And then as we inhale, breathing in, we say, but yours be done. Breathing out, not my will. Breathing in, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. One more time. Not my will, but yours be done. As we seek to pray this prayer for indifference, we might need to take some other steps first. Before you can honestly say to God, I want whatever you want. Maybe you need to spend some time in confession and self-examination, allowing the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, to search your heart and show you your priorities and your pride. It's also helpful to identify what you actually do want. Don't pretend with God that you don't want something if you do. Sometimes our desires are not the same as what God wants, but sometimes they are. It's a good idea to ask him about it. The prayer for indifference, not my will, but yours be done. Then comes the prayer for wisdom. We simply ask God for wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Then the prayer of quiet trust. We can only discern and do God's will if we really believe that his will is the very best thing that can happen to us. If we really trust that he is not only wise, but also loving and good. Psalm 131 is an example of this. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. We find rest and safety as we put ourselves in full dependence on the God that we trust as we wait for his wisdom. The next few items are ways of listening and reflecting. Now that you've asked God for wisdom, how will you hear it? One way is through listening prayer. Prayer is communicating with God, and most of the time we think of it as us talking to God. But as we grow in our spiritual maturity, our prayer life changes over time. And prayer becomes more and more about listening to God. One form of listening prayer is listening to God through the Bible. This is different than the kind of Bible study that we most often do, where we want to analyze and understand the meaning and application of a passage of scripture. That is very important. But especially for Christians who have studied the Bible for a long time, maybe you grew up in the church and you know all the Sunday school answers. There, it's, it's important at this stage to learn how to engage with the Bible in another way. Lectio Divina is an ancient way of listening to scripture that is more about growing your relationship with God than gathering more information about him. Unfortunately, I don't have more time to go deep into it right now, but feel free to ask me or one of our pastors for resources about Lectio Divina. Or you can ask Google. We can also listen to God as we prayerfully journal and reflect on what he has been teaching us. Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, but we're forgetful. We're so busy moving on to the next thing. Pause to journal to listen, remember, and write down what God has been saying to you. 
Maybe he's already given you wisdom through Bible study, sermons, books, music, your small group, your youth leader, or the beauty of creation. We also prayerfully listen to God as we seek wise counsel, asking other Christians, people we respect and trust, who know God's word and know us. In the sermon notes, I've also included a short list of helpful reflection questions for discernment. Maybe after all of that, you get to a point in your decision-making where you have narrowed it down to just a few options. It can help to try them on and prayerfully listen to God as you do. For example, you're considering a career change or deciding your field of study, option A or option B. For one day, try on option A. Live as if you've decided to go with that choice. And then the next day, try on option B. Prayerfully pay attention to how the Spirit of God is speaking to you as you try them on. The Spirit sometimes speaks with audible words. More often in my experience and in others that I've heard from, he might bring to mind a specific verse or phrase or a memory or image that means something to you. He might speak through a sense of relief or freedom in your body and spirit, a peace that passes understanding, or a deep sense that God is drawing you in a certain direction. He might give you the ability to discern between making a choice that is motivated by fear, which is not of God, or making a choice that is compelled by love for what is good and true, that is of God. It's also helpful to remember that the Spirit might not answer your question directly at first. If you're asking, option A or option B, instead of saying, choose B right away, the Holy Spirit might direct you to take a walk or speak to a specific person or stop binge-watching that show for a few days or try out for the worship and tech team. See what I did there? Keep in mind that God doesn't expect us to make decisions based on things he hasn't revealed to us yet. If your decision has a deadline and you have been listening and actively making room to hear from, from God, then he invites you to make a decision based on what he has revealed to you at this point. Remember, this takes practice and it's all part of growing in Christian maturity. If this all seems really advanced or complicated or abstract, remember that God gave the Holy Spirit as a gift to us. Sometimes I read the Old Testament and I feel like, it's not fair. God spoke directly and unmistakably to those people. He met face to face with Abraham and Moses and told them exactly what to do and when and how to do it. If only I had that. Or I think of Jesus' disciples. They got to talk to him in person and follow him around. But Jesus actually told his disciples that it was even better for them to have the Holy Spirit than what came before. John 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor, Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We have the precious gift of the Holy Spirit alive in us. And wherever you are on this journey of following Jesus, whether you are young as a Christian or more mature, God invites each of us to grow more and more like him. No matter how much we know about him, there is always more, a deeper, richer experience of life in Christ. Like I said earlier, I will never be finished learning to play the piano. 
I will never exhaust the riches of all the possibilities of music. When I first started learning the piano, my teacher taught me note by note, count by count. I was totally dependent on my teacher. But over time, with regular practice and good instruction, I started to understand the language of music for myself. It became part of me. In the same way we grow in maturity as Christians, in the earlier stages, we must learn the basics of God's truth, the doctrines and commandments of the Bible, the character of God, the meaning of the gospel. In those stages, God will lead you very clearly, just as my piano teacher did when I was a beginner. But over time, those truths become part of us. They shape our attitudes and behaviors. We resist conforming to the world around us and instead are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. The more we live out God's will, the more we understand it. What I mean by that is, whatever you know for sure of God's will right now, act on it. Live it out. Live it out in faith and then be listening for the Spirit's leading for whatever comes next. As I teach my piano students, I see them reach a point where they can play the notes on the page. Their counting is good. Their fingers are in the right place. Everything is correct. But there's no life in it. They're playing the piano, but with the primary goal of not making a mistake. I would commend them for their ability to play without mistakes, but remind them that they are missing out on the true gift of learning the piano. I would say to them, you can play the notes, but now play the music. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Discerning God's will is not primarily about not making mistakes. Yes, as we grow in wisdom and Christ-likeness, our choices should be more and more aligned with God's ways. We humbly seek accountability from God and from our Christian community. But a spirit-filled Christian is not primarily motivated by fear of messing up God's plan. Do you want to know what God's will is for you? God's will is for you to become more and more like Jesus. To become a spirit-led, truth-filled, God-dependent person who can discern and do his will for his glory. So, my brothers and sisters, when it comes to making decisions, we can play the notes. Now, let's play the music. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we desire to become spirit-led people who discern and do your will. Shape us into your likeness and make us ready and able to hear your wisdom and to know your voice, O God. Cause us to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We surrender our own agendas and plans, and we declare that your will is the very best thing that can ever happen to us in our relationships, careers, marriages, and families, our church, and our world. May we love your word and your ways, and may we be people who truly have the mind of Christ. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.